You guys open your Bibles quickly with me to Luke. I'm just going to take a quick hiatus in Luke. I do this from time to time. I think I like this passage, but um, I saw this bumper, not a bumper sticker, it was a meme the other day, and they said that, um, how's it go? A meme? You know what a meme is? It says that um, everyone's going to meet Jesus, but it's going to go better for you if you know him before that day. And then, and then on the bottom it says, uh, stop, drop, and roll is not going to work in hell. <laughs> I thought that was kind of cool. Hey, in, in Luke, I want to share with you guys something. We're going to get to Exodus in a minute. Um, in Luke chapter 24, in verse 13, and, and I, I highlight this as we go through the Old Testament from time to time. I think it's very important for us to, to keep in grasp and in concept the idea that, that, that the entire Bible is about Jesus. The entire Bible is about Christ. Everything in the Old Testament is an index finger. It's an arrow that points to the cross. Everything in the New Testament is an arrow that points back to the cross. And everything meets at the cross of Christ where, where our lives change and where everything is so powerful. And they, we get this little story at the end of Luke where Jesus has risen from the grave and he's on his way and, and he meets these two guys on the road to Emmaus and he begins to speak to them. And, and I love this little story as a reminder. I'm going to read it all just so we can get to verse 26 and 27. And it says, Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked as, and they talked together all these things which happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and as you are sad? And then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened here in these, in these days? And he said to him, what things? This is Jesus. What things? Like he didn't know. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was, past tense, a prophet, mighty indeed, and before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping, past tense, that it, these guys had given up. That it was he who was going to, to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since all these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that he had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe, and all the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? At the beginning, or excuse me, in verse 27, this is the key. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the things concerning who? Himself. So where did Christ teach them about Christ in the Bible? Starting where? With Moses, and, that, and that's where we're studying right now is with Moses. So Jesus goes back to Moses, and, and, and that's in Exodus is where we, uh, we meet Moses and where Moses is born, right? And then we go from, through this whole story, and beginning there, Jesus goes through, and there, there was Christ all the way before that, all the way in Genesis and all those things, but Jesus started at Moses, and he begins to show him Christ all the way through the, the Old Testament. I saw this little thing, it's... Um, I just wanted to share it with you. It's Jesus in every book of the Bible. And I just thought it was so powerful. And I'm sure you could, I'm sure there's more than one um, example of Jesus in every book of the Bible. But, you know, these are just the ones that were chosen. So 
In Genesis, Jesus is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, Jesus is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is the priest, the altar, and the lamb of sacrifice. In Numbers, he is the pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, Jesus is the prophet like Moses. In Joshua, Jesus is the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he is our judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, he is our kinsman and our redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he is our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he is our reigning king. In Ezra, he is the rebuilder of broken down walls of human life. In Nehemiah, Jesus is the restorer. In Esther, he is our advocate. In Job, Jesus is our ever-living redeemer. In Psalms, he is our shepherd. In Proverbs, he is our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he is the hope of resurrection. In the Song of Solomon, he is our loving bridegroom. In Isaiah, Jesus is the suffering servant. In Jeremiah, he is, he is the righteous wronged. In Lamentations, he is our weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is the one with the right to rule. In Daniel, Jesus is the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, Jesus is the faithful husband, forever married to the sinner. In Joel, he is the one who baptizes with fire and the Holy Spirit. In Amos, he is the restorer of justice. In Obadiah, he is mighty to save. In Jonah, he is our great foreign missionary. In Micah, Jesus is the feet of one who brings good news. In Nahum, Jesus is the stronghold in the day of our trouble. In Habakkuk, he is God, my Savior. In Zephaniah, he is the King of Israel. In Haggai, he is the signet ring. In Zechariah, he is our humble king riding on a colt. In Malachi, Jesus is the son of righteousness. In Matthew, Jesus is God with us. In Mark, he is the son of God. In Luke, he is the son of of Mary, feeling what you feel. In John, he is the bread of life. In Acts, Jesus is the Savior of the world. In Romans, Jesus is the righteousness of God. In 1 Corinthians, He is the resurrection. In 2 Corinthians, He is the God of all comfort. In Galatians, He is your liberty. He set you free. In Ephesians, Jesus is the head of the church. In Philippians, Jesus is your joy. In Colossians, He is your completeness. In 1 and 2 Thessalonians, He is your hope. In 1 Timothy, He is your faith. In 2 Timothy, Jesus is your stability. In Titus, Jesus is truth. In Philemon, he is your benefactor. In Hebrews, he is your perfection. In James, he is the power behind your faith. In 1 Peter, he is your example. In 2 Peter, Jesus is your purity. In 1 John, Jesus is your life. In 2 John, he is your pattern. In 3 John, he is your motivation. In Jude, he is the foundation of faith. In Revelation, Jesus is your coming king. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is the keeper of creation and the creator of all. He is the architect of the universe and the manager of all time. He always was, he always is, and always will be. Unmoved, unchanged, undefeated, and never undone. He was bruised and brought, he- and brought healing. He was pierced and eased pain. He was persecuted and brought freedom. He was dead and brought life. He has risen and brings power. He reigns and brings peace. The, word can- the world can't understand him. Armies can't defeat him. Schools can't explain him. And the leaders can't ignore him. Herod couldn't kill him. The Pharisees couldn't confuse him. No people, could, no people couldn't hold him. Nero couldn't crush him. Hitler couldn't find him. The new age can't replace him. And Oprah can't explain him away. He is life, love, longevity, and law. He is goodness, kindness, gentleness, and love. He is holy, righteous, mighty, powerful, and good. His way is right. His word's eternal. His rule's unchanging, and his mind is on me. He is my redeemer. He is my savior. He is my God. He is my priest. He is my joy. He is my comfort. He is my law, and he rules my life. Amen? Amen. Good stuff, huh, about Jesus? 
Whenever, you know, I was worshiping, I was going to share with you guys, I always have this thing I do when I'm worshiping, and I close my eyes, and I'm raising my hands, and I just, I just hope, beyond hope, that I'm going to, like, open my eyes, and we're all going to be in heaven with this just multitude sea of people worshiping Jesus, and then I open my eyes, and I still see all you guys, and I'm like, <laughs> all right, one more day, Lord, one more day, but how rad would that be? How cool would that be? Just, you know, like, when Jesus comes back, that's where I want to be. I want to be right here, just praising him and worshiping him when he comes back, and catch that ride and open my eyes and just in the sea a multitude of people just worshiping and praising Jesus. All right, you guys, we're actually in Exodus tonight. I was just a little tidbit I wanted to share with you guys. And again, just with the idea that, that Jesus is um, in, every, in every one of these stories. And as we shared before, and I think we're going to wait until we get to the end of the plagues, but um, it, it, what's interesting, and you could do this study on your own as well, but the 10 plagues of Egypt are very similar to many of the judgments in Revelation from chapter 6 to verse 19. Chapters 6 to chapter 19 in the book of Revelation. And over the seven-year tribulation period, those judgments, many of them are, are very similar and are repeated. In every one of these judgments in Egypt, there's a specific um, a, a goal that God was trying to accomplish in proving and showing dominance, dominance over every god in Egypt. And, and the Egyptians served many gods and many different idols. Pharaoh himself was considered to be a god. And, and we're going to see here in the beginning of chapter 5 how that, that plays out. But, but the Pharaoh himself, they were, they were, they were worshipped as gods. They, were, they believed themselves to be gods. That's why they built pyramids. That whole pyramid was one tomb for one pharaoh. It was the purpose of all those pyramids. They were tombs for these, these pharaohs who believed they were gods. And each one, of the, um, um, each one of the plagues is God's dominance over, over one of the Egyptian gods. Israel, um, the, the nation of Israel is going to go through this tribulation, Right? So one of the things as we go through biblical typology, and, and we find it all throughout the Old Testament, and, and in terms of typology of the rapture, you know, we always want to try to find examples in the Bible of um, post, post-rapture, mid-tribulation rapture, pre-tribulation rapture, and, and where are the, you know, what, are, what are the different things in the Bible where we see where God goes through them? And people have been arguing, you guys, about pre, mid, post-tribulation for a long time. I don't think the argument is thousands of years old, but I think it's probably 100 years old. Um, you know, I don't think there was a ton of mid and post-tribulation guys 200 years ago, but, um, but it has lately, right? And it's one of those deals where we, we argue both sides, and, and at the end of the day, nobody really comes to a, a, you know, approvable, dominant position, um, and, except for me. I, I've got it all figured out, and, and I do in my heart anyways, and I, you know, that, that's all that needs to be. I don't have to be right. I don't want to create um, disfellowship, and I don't want to create division between any other believers, and if another believer is a mid-trib guy, that's not a, that's not a, it's not a major issue. It's a, it's a theological issue. It's not a salvation issue. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's nothing that should separate us. And certain issues do separate us, right? How you get saved, who Jesus is. Those, those are, you know, we're not, we're, we're not to have fellowship or, you know, work together with, with other churches that, that miss on the majors. And if they don't have the right Jesus, and Jesus is whatever the world says he is, as Islam says that he's a, he's a prophet, and he's going to come back and, and show the Jews and the Christians why we're wrong. And, you know, that's, not, that's the wrong Jesus. The Mormons have the wrong Jesus. Um, you know, and so th- those are major issues that separate us. Where, where your, your tribulation theology is, it's not. But I, I think for me, you know, like I, 
I, I have to have a position that's defendable, that I can, that I believe, that I can see, that, that makes sense to me. And I'm through and through pre-tribulation rapture guy from beginning to end, you know, and, and there's just every way I see it, every, every point, everything I look, everything I've studied, it all points to me unequivocally to a pre-tribulation rapture. Now, the, the, my friends that are mid-tribulation rapture guys, they, um, you know, there's no argument between us as far as these two facts. Um, the nation of Israel is going to go through the tribulation, okay? And, then, and, and the church will be removed from the tribulation. So if you have a mid-tribulation theology, then, then you just believe that the church is going to go through the first part and then God is going to going to rapture the church. That's not a the argument is never whether you know whether there's a rapture or not. We all agree there's a rapture. We all agree the church is going to be removed at some point. And so the issue only issue is timing. Okay? And so when when you look at the Bible, you know this guy says to me recently, um, you know I looked and he's a mid-trib kind of defending the mid-trib position and he says, you know, I I looked recently at the Bible and I tried to think of of where in the Bible do you see where God does allow his people to go through tribulation? And he says that's in Egypt. When you get to the 10 plagues where we are right now, he said God's people went through them. And you can read, and as we go through them, like the hailstorms in the sixth plague, in the seventh plague, we're going to see where there's a line that says that the hail fell on everywhere in Egypt except for the place where all the Jews were. No hail fell there. And so God was able to preserve them. But I, I pointed out to him, yeah, that's, that's nice, but the, the, the Jews in Egypt that went through this, they're, they're not a picture of the church. They're a picture of Israel. And Israel will go through the tribulation. And the entire tribulation is Jewish. The whole nature is Jewish. And we, saw, we studied on Sunday this 70-week um, model that Daniel lays out for us. It's a prophetic model of, 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 of prophecy that's going to lay out. 69 weeks are fulfilled. And there's one week which we call the 70th week of Daniel, which is yet remaining. And we're in this pause between the 69th and the 70th week of Daniel. And the 70th week of Daniel resumes at the tribulation period. And that is the last seven years of human history as we know it, culminating in the um, apocalypse or the Armageddon, followed by a thousand year millennial reign of Christ. So, so, so Israel, and in that, in that whole timepiece, what, what happens prophetically is the God's model it, it, it goes back to his prophetic timepiece right now is on the church and it's going to shift and his focus is going to shift back to Israel. And for seven years, the tribulation period really is about God getting the attention of the Jews to this day who have not received him as their Messiah. And, and the church is removed during that point. And so you're going to see all that you guys to say this kind of got off a little bit, but don't, don't let me lose you. All that was just to say there's, there's typology in the Old Testament. So as we look for him, so we see Enoch, for example. What, what would Enoch be? The Bible says Enoch walked with God and he was not because God took him. So what is Enoch a type of? Well, so I'm talking about rapture, tribulation. Enoch walked with God and he was not because God took him. So he'd be a type of right, of right the church that is removed. So if, if you're looking at typology for somebody like Enoch, well, that's simple because he was raptured. So the bride of Christ is raptured. And now again, that's, that's not a... That's not an arguing point among different tribulation theories because the argument is not if the church is going to be raptured like Enoch and Enoch is a type of the rapture. The, the, the point is when, but again, who cares on that stuff, right? As far as 
arguing and knowing this stuff. You just need to know what you believe, something that you can defend. Go to the Word. And like I said, as I've done that, and this is this place is another one where it's, 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 we're not going to be here. And that's the hope that you can have. So be ready. Because you're not going to be here for the tribulation period. So it, Egypt going, or the Israelites going through the, the, the plagues type of Israel that will go through the tribulation. Chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. If I was standing there, I think I would have stepped back so when the lightning hit him, I wouldn't have been too close. But he said, Who is the Lord that, that I should not know him? And again, Pharaoh would have had the mentality that he was God. And he just said, I don't know the Lord. And you know, for so many people, they, 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 they confess out of their own mouth, their own condemnation, their own damnation, and that, and that they don't know the Lord. Because the number one key for salvation is to know Jesus. And Jesus said to receive him and to believe in him, right? And Jesus said, on that day, some will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. Lord, Lord, we, we did miracles in your name. And he will say to them, the scariest words that anyone will ever hear, Jesus will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. And on that day, that depart from me, I never knew you is so scary because when you depart from Jesus, there's only one place you're going to go and that's to eternal separation with God. And eternal separation from God is the definition of hell. And so let's turn to Romans really quick. <clears throat> I think Pharaoh kind of fits in this modern day um, prophetic model or type of, of, of just men that, that I think we live with today more than anything. Verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God... In Romans chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Okay, so what does that say in verse 18? It says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteous men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So is the issue that they don't have truth? No, right? That's not the issue. Because they have truth, but what do they do with the truth that they have? They suppress it. They have truth and they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then it goes on and it says, um, because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his inevitable, sorry, invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. So God says for these people clearly that his invisible attributes are clearly seen. What? What does that mean? But God says to you and to those people who willingly suppress the truth, they're going to be without excuse on Judgment Day because God's um, invisible attributes are clearly seen. So, so the, the reality is there's no such thing as an atheist. There's no such thing as somebody who, who doesn't believe there's a God because God's created it within your very DNA to know there's a God. Your, your, your body is streaming with millions of little crosses that make up every molecule in your body. At the heart of every one of your, your molecules is laminin. And laminin is a protein molecule in your body and your blood cells that's in the perfect shape of a cross. And, and, you're, and they flow in your body. And God has created within you the, the desire and the, the ability to know. He gave you the moon and the sun and the stars. And there's no way you can, you can look out this window and see the mountains and the, the rolling hills and the snow top capped and the purple skies and the sunsets and the sunrises and not realize there's a God. God's created that in you. And so his, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. So we know there's a creator. 
It's, it's created in you. The only way that you can believe or that you can say or claim atheism or, or non-creator God, you have, to, you have the truth that you have to suppress. And then, but they're going to be without excuse. And it says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. How many professors and colleges and universities around the United States do you think would, would fit that bill? Professing to be wise, they became fools. You know, it's unfortunate, but, you know, Satan has, has very successfully infiltrated our education system in the United States. And my wife went a while ago. She's old now. She's like 25, but um, she's really old. But um, she, when she went to college... And she did four years. She got a bachelor's degree from San Bruno State University. And my wife's brilliant. When it came to school, she just is gifted. Just God gave her a gift. And, you know, it just comes easy for her. And my middle son is the same way. He doesn't have to try very hard, but it just comes easy for him. She had a test in, a, in an art history class. And she had a hundred um, pieces of art that they were studying. And, and the exam, the teacher wanted him to memorize three pieces of information um, about each piece of art. So basically, there's 300 things you got to remember for this test. So she makes, she writes down the, she makes um, cards to study, and she writes the piece of art on one side of the card. You flip it over and you write the three things that you have to know about the piece of art on the other side of the card. And so she sits down at the table and she writes out all 100 cards and all 300 pieces of information she needs to know, and then she hands them to me and she says, "Judge, test me on them." I'm like, don't waste my time. You just wrote them. Why don't you study them for a little bit before, before you waste my time to, 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 for, you know, to test you on them. And just in the time it took her to write them down, she had memorized about 70% of the information. She, she, she retained most of it, 70% of it. And then she had to go back and study and get it all. And of course, she got 100% on the test and remembered all 300 things she was supposed to remember. But it just came pretty naturally. And, you know, all, all through college... Every class she took, that particular class, I tell another story about that class. The very first day she entered that class, um, and it's an art history class. And I have no idea what an art history class has to do with Jewish slaves. But the first lecture in the class was the teacher telling the class that there were never um, Israelite or Jewish slaves in Egypt. It's a myth. It's not true. And da, da, da. What in the world does that have to do with art history? Deliberate attack on what the word of God says to be true from from the gate and that was in the opening speech of this class but everything she did was that way and you know she went through and um you know she 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 took the test and she got she wrote what the teacher wanted and thankfully her faith was strong enough but unfortunately so many kids are leaving high school and they're going to college and and their faith are getting rocked because they're getting belittled they're getting ridiculed they're being they, they basically will make you feel like you're an idiot if you believe in a god and they're pretty smart and their their arguments are pretty crafty and super important that, you know, our young people are, are strong in their faith when they're going away to secular universities and that they, they have some grounding and they, they, they know some apologetics. You know, in our Christian school back home, we teach creation, obviously, but we also teach evolution and we go through it so they know it and so that, you know, they can defend it and they, they know the tenets of it and they're able to, to defend their faith. But, you know, that's the same idea that the, 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 the foolish things of this world professing to be wise, they become fools. In verse 23, in Romans chapter 1, and change the glory of incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, four-footed animals, and creepy things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanliness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. So God is going to give them up. So Pharaoh, and, and I'm going to hit on this in 
we're going to get to to Exodus eventually, I promise. But Pharaoh is, um, Pharaoh, there's this thing we're going to get to as we start the, um, the 10 plagues. And it's going to say, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And everybody cries at that point, like, well, how is that justifiable that God hardens this guy's heart and then God judges him because he has a hard heart? And that, that, you know, can't you see God's unfair or this is unfair of God, that, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But as you read the progression, it's a different Hebrew word. And the same thing is true here. And exactly the same thing happens in Romans chapter one is that somebody makes a decision. They harden their heart. They harden their heart. And the Bible says that every time you harden your heart be hard, uh, against the Lord, it's as if a hot iron sears your heart. Your heart is seared as with a hot iron. And one of the dangers of living in sin for too long, the first time you sin, it's pretty easy. The second time, or first time you sin, it's very difficult. The second time you sin, it gets easier and easier and easier. And every time we sin and every time we, we, we allow something in our life, it's a pass of that hot iron over our heart that's making our heart hard. And we want to have a soft heart and a malleable heart and a heart that God can use. And so eventually, when we, you know, we get to the point where we don't want forgiveness. And, we don't, we, and, and then all God does is He just gives us what we've asked for. And we've hardened our heart, we've hardened our heart, we've hardened our heart, we've hardened our heart. And then God just establishes the heart that, that we've, we've chosen. And at some point, God says, okay, you, you can have what you've asked for. I've established you now in the position that, that you've taken. And, and you get to that point where, you know, you, you don't want forgiveness and you won't change. You know, and we have people all the time that come in and they say, oh, you know, we had a, this sweet woman at church in Joshua Springs and she came in and she was in her 80s. And hadn't really walked with the Lord because, she, and she's, she's in tears and really believes and she comes in for counseling and she, she says, I've, I've committed the unpardonable sin. And, and she's really upset believing that there's no forgiveness for her. And she's for, committed the unpardonable sin. And then we'll say, there's no way that you've not committed the unpardonable sin. Well, how do you know I haven't even told you what I did yet? Well, the very fact that you're here and that your heart is broken and that you want forgiveness, that means you have not committed the unpardonable sin. Because what happened in Pharaoh's life, what happens in Romans chapter 1, what, what can happen in the hardest of hearts is that you get to the point where you don't want forgiveness. You, you just, you, you're, you're done. You're done. You're, you, you're so hard that you'll, you'll never seek forgiveness again. And at that point, God does establish a hard heart. That's what he's going to do in Pharaoh's life. That's what he does here um, with these um, people in, the book of, in, the, in Romans chapter 1. Verse 24 again, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanliness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature, lesbianism or lesbians. Likewise, also men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men, homosexuality, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of, penalty of their error, which is due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. So one of the proof texts or one of the places in the scripture where it says that um, LGBT or L, LG anyways, we can, we can stop there for for today, that it's sin. And so for us as the church to say that if you're living in a, in a lesbian or a homosexual lifestyle, that that's sin, it, 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 we're, not, we're not saying that we're labeling sin what it is. What the Bible says is sin. 
And so I'm not saying that I hate you. I'm not saying that, you know, this or this or that and all the things they want to add to what we're saying as a church. Basically, what we're saying at church is that sin is sin. If, if you're lying, guess what? It's a sin. If you're a heterosexual male and you're having sex outside of marriage and you're, you know, Johnny Suave and you're, you know, you're out on Friday night and, you know, you're sleeping around all the time and clubbing it. Guess what? With women. Guess what? It's sin. If you're a married guy and you're sleeping with somebody else that's not your wife, it's sin. If, if you go to the supermarket today and, and you, you steal, guess what? It's sin. And, and, and that's what we're saying on the issue. We're saying that it's sin. The Bible says it's sin. And, it's a, and, and what's interesting is that it says here that it's a sin against your own body. And then that's just proven out health-wise in every other way. It's the, the lifestyle is very hard on your health, very hard on your life. The life expectancy, um, I think it's actually growing now to where it's a little bit longer. But it used to be that the life expectancy for a gay male in the United States was like 40 years old. And so, you know, it's just hard on the body. It's hard, it's hard on your life. And, and, and the life expectancy is not there. And so, again, what, what we're doing is we're just saying what, what is sin is sin. And you know what? The, the Bible says that there's going to come a time where we call what's good evil and what's evil good. And we're so upside down right now. It's crazy, right? Don't you guys think it's crazy that we have to have a conversation about what bathroom to use? Like, really? It says, you know, it's been, it's been on the, the, the locker room in my, in my school for 100 years. And it says girls restroom and boys restroom. And we're having to have a conversation about that now. Like, it's, it's a national decree from our president. That's just crazy. It's out of this world that, that what's, what, you know, things that you'd never dream of before... And, you know, I think who knows what's going to happen in the next six months, right? You know, Obama told Vladimir Putin off record, and it was recorded, um, in between his first and his second election, he said, you wait until this, the second election is done, and then the floodgates will open up. Because at that point, I don't have to win a second election, and you'll see. And, and I think he's reaching that point now where he, he knows his time is running out. And, and all the evil that he had planned and wants to continue. Now, now don't get me wrong, he's accomplished a ton already. This Iran nuclear deal is going to bring about the, the, the demise and, and, and it's going to fulfill God's plan and God's will. But that Iran nuclear deal is the worst deal that the United States has ever seen. And in the, and the, and the entire, just for the first time in, in our history of the United States, we've turned our back on Israel. And that, that in itself, it fulfills biblical prophecy. And, and, and it's just, you know, a grave evil. But who knows what's going to happen? Who knows what's coming in the next six months? Who knows what other floodgates... He, he's running out of time on and he wants to open up. Where were we? Likewise. So um, j- just to go back. So, so again, just, just this mentality that who is God and I don't know him as, in, is, as it says in um, Deuteronomy. In verse 18, I want to go back to verse 18. Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So again, evolution is, is new, right? In the 1500s, there was no such thing as evolution. Um, evolution is new. And so, fairly new. And, and one of the, the things that evolution accomplished, and one of the, the, the goals of evolution, is that if you admit there's a creator God, it begs a second question. Or, am I responsible to that creator God? Is that, is, is, do I, am I accountable to that creator God? And the obvious answer is if God created you, then, then there's a moral system and there's a moral law and, and that you are responsible to that God. And so how do I, how do I sleep at night if, if, if I like to sin and I like to live my life in sin? 
Well, one of the ways that I can help myself sleep at night and I can help my conscience is if I can just believe there is no God. And so since there's no way that in truth I can believe that and know that's true because the way God created me, I have to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But, but the longer that you suppress truth and the longer that you tell yourself a lie, then you begin to believe that lie. Then, then that lie beca- begins to come truth in your life. But the, the, the reason for it originally it is so that I don't have to be, I can live my life however I want. I can be my own God. I can serve whoever I want. I can do whoever, I can do whatever I want. Yeah, whoever I want. And, and I don't have to be accountable for it. And so the, the, the issue so, so oftentimes is, is your conscience. You don't want to be accountable and rely, or responsible to that God. And what's so sad about that and those people is that all the things that they're looking for, Jesus said, if you'll let those things go, you'll find them in me. I have all that and more. And all that stuff, if you'll let go. That, that God will come in and fill those voids in your life. And the reason why we run from God and the reason why we don't want to be close to God is the very thing that he has for us, the very thing that he wants to give us as we run to him. Let's go back to Deuteronomy or Exodus and see if we can finish just a few more minutes of Exodus. We'll end a little early tonight. Don't start laughing at me. He doesn't even laugh at me. I'm good. Exodus chapter 5. So Pharaoh said, who is, verse 2, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Do you guys know, um, you heard of Friedrich Nietzsche? Friedrich Nietzsche is the famous philosopher who really was nobody until, you know, his, his stuff kind of caught work later. But he had, he had been um, a, an accomplished psychologist and, um, and he wrote books and then later in Nietzsche's life, but really not, not huge, right? It wasn't until recently that this whole new age movement has really tried to bring Nietzsche back to life and his philosophies and what he said, but he died. He committed suicide in a psych ward at the end of his life. And you think this is the guy, the philosopher that, that you want to follow and his ideas and, and, and you think they're good ones. And what did they do for him? Committed suicide in a psych ward at the end of his life. It's like people that used to go on that Atkins diet. Like, you, 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 what, you know what happened to Atkins? His own diet killed him. I used to say if George, my, the, the, one of the guys, one of my uh, spiritual kind of people that led me to Jesus, a huge influential in my life, was a big uh, Idaho farmer named uh, George Havertate. Not Idaho, Wisconsin. He's, he's a Green Bay guy from Wisconsin. And, and everything, every meal George ever ate in his life was meat and potatoes. You know, and Atkins came in and said you couldn't eat meat and potatoes in the same meal. And I said, I'd like to see Atkins tell that to, to, to Papa George because Papa George would bulldoze that dude in a minute. And then his own diet killed him, so he's, he's communist, you know. But Nietzsche, who, who lived his life a certain way, and Nietzsche is the, the one who was famous for coining the phrase, God is dead. And so, you know, the movie just came out that not too long ago, God's not dead. God is dead. They added the not. That, that's the whole Nietzsche philosophy they're studying in the schools today. It's, it's gaining popularity. It has in the past. I don't know how, how much it is today. But there was a story about a, a guy in a subway in New York. And he, he spray painted on the wall, God is dead. And then he signed it, uh, Frederick Nietzsche. And then somebody else came and wrote underneath it, Frederick Nietzsche is dead. Signed, God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Pharaoh, he's a Nietzsche guy. God is dead. Who is God that I should serve him and know him? Obviously, his heart is already hard, right? He has no, 
desire to serve or know the God of the Hebrews. And then it says, so they said in verse 3, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. So they, they only asked to go three days journey and come back originally. They, weren't, they didn't ask for the whole cut. Uh, kit and caboodle, which eventually is what God's going to do. So all Pharaoh is, is having to agree to at this point is a three-day journey for them to travel three days, worship, spend some time meeting with their God, and coming back. And that's what he thinks the deal is about, and he still is not going to go for it. And in verse 4, it says, Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Go back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are many. Now you make them rest from their labor. So the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people, of the officers, saying, You shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And you shall lay on them the quota of brick which they made before you. Before You shall not reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry out, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. So one of the things that Pharaoh and, his, and, and Egypt was very prosperous. Egypt was the strongest nation in the world. They, they, they were um, marvels, um, genius in education. They, they had solved um, riddles and the distance between the sun and the earth and the stars. Uh, they moved stones that today was super, you know, machinery that we have today. We couldn't move the same size stones and they were able to move them. Um, they were able to put them in place and they, they, were, they were very, very ingenious um, some of the smartest people the world's ever seen what the Egyptians were able to accomplish. And part of their success was based on the fact that they had a ton of slave labor. And you know, anywhere where there's, and I'm not advocating obviously slavery for any, in any means, but the reality is if you own a business and everybody that works for you, you don't pay them, obviously, right? You make more money. I mean, it's easy math, right? So where there was slave labor, it was prosperous. The people were prosperous. Pharaoh was very prosperous because of all the, all the Hebrew slave labor. And in verse 9, it says, so he says no, and he says, let more work be laid on the men that they may labor in it and let them not regard false words. And the taskmasters of the people and the officers went out and spoke to the people saying, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go get yourself straw from where you can find it. Yet none of your work, work will be reduced. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt, gathered stubble instead of straw. And the taskmasters forced them, hurrying, saying, Fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when, as when there was straw. And the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today as before? So what's, what's very cool is there's places in, in Egypt where you can see this exact passage of Scripture fulfilled before your very eyes. They were building walls. As we know, they built the walls of the city Ramesses, as the Bible already told us. And, and there's certain places that are there today, preserved in antiquity, where you, you can see these walls, and you can see exactly as it's laid out here in the Bible. The bottom bricks, they're with straw, they're, they're good. And then as the wall goes up, it gets sloppier and sloppier and stubble, and the bricks that were being made that were laying this wall were getting sloppier and sloppier as it goes up, exactly as this happened, as they had to go and gather their own straw, their quota didn't change, the taskmaster continued to, to beat them and require the same quota of bricks a day so you had to make 100 bricks a day 
Okay, it's hard work as it is, but you've got a pile of straw right there that you can use to make these hundred bricks. Tomorrow they come after Moses comes and, and tells Pharaoh to let his people go three days journey and worship. He goes back to the people and he says, you're going to make the same hundred bricks a day, but we're not going to provide the straw for you anymore. You're going to have to go out and find all your own straw and come back. Obviously, that would double their work. They weren't able to do it. They, were, they weren't meeting their quotas at the end of the day. And again, in those walls during this time, you can see it laid out exactly as it says here in the Bible. And in verse 15, it says, Then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why are you dealing thus with your servant? There is no straw given to your servants. And they say to us, Make more bricks. And indeed, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, idle. Therefore, you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore, go now and work for no straw shall be given to you yet you... You shall deliver the quota of bricks. And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble. After it was said, you shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. Then as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron, who stood there to meet them. And they said to them, let the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us an abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in the hand to kill us. So how hard is your job? How bad is your boss? Yeah, you guys, I hear you guys whining, all right? So I know, I know how it goes, and I know the reality of it. But if you, you know, next time you want to have a pity party, just go to Exodus 5 and read what, you know, and these are God's people, right? These are not, these are Christian people. We can use that term, right, for Christ, but they're, they're God's people. And yet, yet they're, they, they went through hard things. They went through hard things that God was in control of, that God had power over, God was, was determining in their lives. And sometimes, you know what, when, when, you become a, when you become a Christian or a bond servant of Christ, the term, the term servant or bond servant, it's doulos, is, is the Greek word for that. And a doulos was a servant by choice. And so when, when, a, when a slave had, had fulfilled his commitment of time and he was to be set free, and if that slave liked the master and they treated him well and he wanted to stay there for the security and the job and the situation, he could become a bondservant or a doulos. And so they would take him to the doorpost of the house and they would drive an awl through his ear. They'd put his ear up against the door and they would drive an awl through his ear. So these kids today that have those things through their ear, they didn't invent that. Ain't nothing new under the sun. You ain't that cool. And it doesn't mean today what it used to mean, but it was, it was a sign that you were a bondservant. And so we're, we're bondservants of Jesus Christ. That's what God calls us to do. That's what the New Testament calls us to do. So as a servant, you know, the reality is sometimes we're, we're, we, we have to understand that we're a servant of Christ. And that he has our best interest at hand. But maybe God would say to some, you know what, you're, you're never going to make more than minimum wage your whole life. You're never going to have the boat and the car and the house and the you know, all these wonderful things, but are you willing to continue to serve me? Because this world is not your home, right? This world is a tent that's passing through and, and you have a kingdom of God that awaits you one day. You have a real heaven, a real eternity. And, and if you can put into any kind of perspective in your mind's eye, just the reality that if heaven is for eternity and eternity is, has no end, and so we could try to put a number on it. Let's go 10 trillion gazillion years compared to the 70 years that you're going to live here on this earth, are you willing for 70 years just to say, God, here I am, I'm yours, and not, not live a life of defeat and complaining and, and, and difficulty, even if God says to you, 
you're going you're gonna to work for minimum wage your whole life and you're going to work hard and you're going to serve me in this way and I'm going to see to it. Are we willing? Are, are we okay with that? And as a bondservant, as a slave of Christ, we want to get to that point. I think if we get to that point in our lives, that, that God will give blessing and will add blessing. But sometimes we need to get to that point first. You need to get to that point where regardless of, you know, David, King David, same thing. King David got to that heart and he said, God, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in your house than to dwell in the tents with the wicked. And I'll do anything for you, God, as long as it's in the house of God. And just having that heart. And the, the, the Bible is just chocked full. I was actually just thinking right now as I'm talking, I'm thinking, where, where are the places in the Bible where the, 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 the men and the women were like so blessed? Like they were just like happy, healthy, and wealthy. And, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't find it really too much, Right. And obviously, that's not God's goal. God's goal. I think God has immensely blessed us here in the United States. And you guys know the stats, and they're all true. If you have a bank account, it doesn't matter if there's a dollar in it or not. If you have a bank account in your name, and you have somewhere in your house where you, you keep change laid out on, the, on, the, on a tabletop, on a counter, on a nightstand, on a drawer in your house, if you own a bank account and you have change laying around your house, you're in the top 2% wealthiest people in all the world. And, and, and we act like spoiled brats. We really do. That's just the bottom line, right? You know, you, you know I, I remember telling the story and I saw this thing and it was, it was during the, um, in Iraq when all of the Christians were fleeing Iraq. And, and there was this, this story and the video was, was there and there was a family in Iraq and they were fleeing Iraq on foot and they had got to this wall and it was a quarter wall. It was only about this high. And, the whole, and it was hot and it was miserable and the whole family gathered up close to the wall and they had a sheet that they laid over their heads and had a little stick holding it up on the wall side to pick it up off them a little bit to create a little bit of shade and that was everything they owned in the world was that sheet and what was on their back and and, and they're Iraqi Christians who love God who are on their way somewhere you know and that, that's not their home that's not their home their homes and he's in eternity with heaven and being focused on heaven, being focused on eternal things and just being able to, you know, I think, like I said, with Joseph, and, and I guess there is, right? Like, to be honest, if we look at Abraham, Abraham was wealthy and Abraham was the father of faith. Abraham was extremely wealthy and blessed. Job, what happened to Job at the end of his life? God gave him 10 times what he took from him. And Job was wealthy in the beginning. So he was super, super wealthy in the end. Joseph, who, who, who was in a hole, who was a slave. So, so there, there is, if I'm being honest then, you know, there, there, is the, there is God's blessing, right? And there are plenty of people, plenty of examples, and the same people often. The same people who, you know, went through times like this. You know, the same nation of Israel, who, who some of these people, they're going to be the ones that are hiding in the holes and the clefts of the rocks, as we talked about last week. Because in every story of victory, there's that group that just wouldn't step out in, in God, step out in Christ and go for it. And, and God left them in the holes and the cracks. And God used the ones that wanted to, wanted to serve God and go for it in their lives and, 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 you know, step out and serve Jesus at all cost. But, and there was a blessing, and there is a blessing oftentimes at the end. But, but you, you do see times like this, and these, again, where, I mean, this, these guys are getting beaten every day, impossible odds. They probably were already working 12 hours a day. Now maybe not even meet the quota. They're working 16 hours a day. I've worked 16 hours a day before. When I was in Alaska... And it was cool, and I'm alive, and I learned a lot from it. And it goes on in verse 22, and it says, So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? 
And so naturally, right, what are we going to say? God, why all this trouble? And so as we cry out to God, you know, that's natural. That's natural response. And I don't think that I, I'm not asking anybody in here to, you know, get beaten by your boss and your taskmaster and, you know, run out of your work like, yay, like it was so awesome. Like that's, that's not going to be our natural response. But just a heart through it all that sometimes, you know, maybe we whine a little bit, we vent, we talk to me, we talk to your wife, you talk to your friends, whatever you do. But you just get to that point where you, you see God's sovereign hand in your life. That in God's sovereignty, could God give you another boss or another job? He could, very easily. But He hasn't. So in His sovereignty, He has you where you are. And so many times, you know, people that jump around all the time, job to job to job to job to job to job, it's the same in the, in the next one. you got the same situation in the next one, the same situation in the next one. It's just kind of life for part of it. But just to that point where you can go to God and say, God, what, why? You know, what's going on? Or... Well, what do you have in this? Or what are you teaching me in this? But, but kind of lose that. Why well, I me, mean, God? This is so terrible. You don't love me. No, he loves you just fine. He's not mad at you. This is not your home. Verse 23. For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil in this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. God, you haven't done anything. You haven't even showed up at all. And all that's happened since I came in and been obedient and done what you told me to do, it's gotten worse. Anybody experienced that in this church? You know, I think I look around, I see some people, and I, I see that same situation. You know, people that have stepped up to serve God in Twila in a spiritual strongholds, in a place where we're 99% against us, and 99%, we're the one percenters, and we stepped up in spiritual battles after spiritual battles after spiritual battles, and we say, God, we stepped up to serve you and, and be a part, and, and nothing good has happened at all. What are you doing? And, and as Moses just comes to God, he, he's just honest. Lord, well, what's going on? You, you, have you done anything good? Are you going to do anything at all? And then, and then in verse 6, the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he, he will let them go. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. Thank God that God has a strong hand. And God, sa- God spoke to Moses and said, I am the Lord. And so he just reminded Moses again of who he is and... and you know, I think for in all those things that I've talked about and in the spiritual battles that we face, that, that, that is what God says to us. Like, don't forget who I am. Don't forget what I've done and who I am. And, and, and that's why as, as a foundation of our Christianity, you have to have a couple things solid or you're going to struggle. You're going to struggle in life if you don't have a couple things super solid in your walk with Christ. Number one, God is good. God is just. God is fair. God is righteous and true in all of his judgments. Jesus does all things well. And you may not understand them. You may not like them. You may not get them. But whenever you cross those lines that God's not fair, God's not just, God's not righteous and true in all of his judgments. So God went to to a, 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 a village where there was a tribe there called the Amalekites. And God told his people, kill every man, woman, child, dog, goldfish. If it's a live baby, man, woman, kill it. God is, God is faithful and true. God is just and true in all his ways. And all of his decisions are righteous. You're going through something hard. God is true and just and righteous. And all of his decisions are true and righteous. And it doesn't matter what God does. 
It doesn't matter how he does it if the foundation is, is the same. The one thing I know is that God is righteous and true. 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 And so I don't know why I'm struggling. I don't know why things are hard. I don't know why my job is hard. My boss is bad. My boss is mean. Maybe God's trying to teach you something in it. Maybe God's trying to teach me something in it. You know, I had to go, I, um, you know, and my boss was my father-in-law for most of my adult life. And I was married to his daughter. And so it was like, it was double whammy, dude. If I, if I got in a fight with my wife at home, I'm in, I'm in trouble at work and I'm cleaning bathrooms the next day. Like, and if I do something wrong at work, then I'm in trouble at work. And it was like, and before that, when I first got saved, I went to where I was in Hemet and I worked for a structural seating company and I was, I was, you know, intermediate welder welding in a, in a, in a structural seating company where we worked on bleachers and God put me in the, in the shop with about four or five guys and we traveled a bunch and my boss, I hope this is on tape and I hope he hears it. He was the most worst individual I ever met in my life. His name was Michael Smooty. <laughs> Put that on the tape, Michael Smooty, at uh, a Hemet structural seating. And he was just a miserable person. His wife ended up leaving him because he was just miserable and hated life. And everything that he, he ever corrected me was at the top of his lungs, red face mad. He didn't have like a zero, like rev up and get to a hundred and get really mad all the time. There was no in between. He was zero or a hundred and, and, and screaming in your face, upset. Like, like he wanted to like hurt you. If you like scratch something in the office or one time he brought me to his office and I was putting the light covers on the, on all the light things. They took them all off to do some painting or something. He came in and there was about six of them. He told me, Hey, put those covers back on it. I started to put the covers back on and I got one of the screws too tight and it cracked the cover a little bit and the dude was flipped out on me in his office screaming because I cracked the cover on the light thing. And, you know, but there was, there was a reason for it. My point is, is, is just that in my life at the time, there, there was a reason. I was a new Christian. I had a lot of baggage. I had a lot of pride. I had a lot of issues that I had to die to. I thought I was a tough kid. I thought I was a tough guy. I had a chip on my shoulder and I wanted to kill this guy a million times. And a million times, I didn't want to lose my witness. And I, did, I didn't want to lose the, 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 uh, the ability and the opportunity to share Christ. And so that's why I couldn't beat him. And, and, you know, but there was something that happened in that. There was a process. And, you know, I was there for almost two years under this, this tutelage. And, and I did grow over the years. And I didn't always, I wasn't successful every day for the two years, but I made it. I stayed there for two years. And until that was accomplished, when I left there, I went to Bible college. That's what I was doing when I left to go to Bible college. But, and I spent my summers in Alaska during that time. So um, it was good. All right. Has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Tough boss, taskmasters, less straw, more bricks. Right, Larry? Larry knows that his work, right? Less, less straw, more bricks. And that's, that's what the children of Israel were facing. Less straw, more bricks. Verse 3, chapter 6. We're going to finish chapter 6 and we'll be done. It's going to go into some genealogy. I won't read all that to you, so we'll just finish this next section. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. And that's what I was saying, right? That's what God says. I am the Lord. I am righteous and true. Maybe there's a lesson in what God's teaching you in your life. Maybe there's a lesson in the place you're at. So, so finish the test. Pass the test. If you fail the test, you don't get out of the class. Oh, I just, just flunked this test and I don't have to take it. No, that's not the way it works in God's economy. Here at the church, if you get in trouble and you serve in a ministry, you don't get kicked out of that ministry. You get six more months. 
That, that, that's the sentence. Six more months, you know, until you get it right. And that's the way it works in God's economy. And so I am the Lord, reminded of who God is. And I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I have also established, that's, that's a relationship name. L-O-R-D is that, that same, the I am. We studied that a couple weeks ago, the Tetragrammaton, the name of God. But it's also personal to Moses. And I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan and the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with, with great judgment. You, you know, one of the things that um, I think God can do through us going through hardships and hard times is that it, it is a witness to the world. It is a witness to those around us. And, and maybe it's, it's not better for, for, your, for God to use you as a witness for him if everything is hunkadory all the time and everything's great and nice. But if, if, if you struggle, if you go through hard times, if you go through hardships, if you have to face hard things and you find joy in it anyways and you find a good attitude through it and you, you, know, you serve God in it and you love God and you, you experience something and people are going to look at you, they're going to see that. And they're going to see something different in you that, 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 that is a witness. And for no doubt, the, the hard things that the, Egyptians, that the children of Israel went through, Egypt was watching. God was going to use that as a witness. In verse 7 it says, And I will take you as my people. I love that whenever God says that. You'll be my people. It says that in Revelation. They will be my people and I will be their God. And I will, and I will be your God. And then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as an inheritance. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. Do you guys want to come up close us in a song, Matt? We got one more song? Come on up. In verse 11, he says, Go in, tell Pharaoh of his, of his land. And Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Moses had, I guess, and from what we understand and what we've been reading right, Moses either had some kind of slur or speech impediment or something of, of, of speech that bothered him. And he, um, you know, that's why he told God that asked Aaron to come along. And then Moses and Aaron together, um, the two witnesses there, it, it kind of, it also fits the typology of the two witnesses in Revelation. And so here he says that he was of uncircumcised lips. And Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I have of uncircumcised lips. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh the king of Egypt to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Then the heads of their father's houses, the son of Reuben, the firstborn, and we're going to see the, 12, the, the, the men of the twelve tribes, the son of the twelve tribes. And then it goes through the names and the rest of the genealogy. You can read that list there. And in verse 28 it says, And it came to pass on that day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I am the Lord. He said that twice in this chapter, so pay attention. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips, and how shall Pharaoh heed me? Chapter 7, the first plague, and the plagues are going to begin. We'll pick those up next week.
Let's stand and worship the Lord. What a, what an awesome thing for you guys to come out. And I know it's not super glorious, but you know we're studying the book of Exodus chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we're just going through and, and, and reading what the Word of God says. But you know it's, it's that part of your diet. It's a part of taking God's Word in your life that, that definitely will add to your life, that will change your life. And you know in the book of Revelation, God says it's the, it's the ones, you know, there'll come a generation when people won't, t- won't take heed to my Word. And we're living in that generation. We're living in that generation today where the largest churches in America, they don't teach the Word of God. And they don't talk about sin. And they don't talk about, about, about those things. And yet for you guys to come out faithfully and, and just, just receive the Word of God and study the Word of God on, on a Wednesday night in Exodus makes me proud. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this day. Lord, I thank you, Lord, for just... Lord, these people that have come out, Lord, to study the book of Exodus chapter by chapter, word by word, to fellowship with one another, to receive and hear from you. God, we thank you for the word of God. In Revelation, it says, Lord, the church that you blessed, the church that you had nothing negative to say about is the church that kept your word. And so, God, I pray that we would be obedient and and, and learn, Lord Jesus, and be a church, Jesus, that keeps your word. And that as we study your word, we know your word, we hide it in our hearts. We thank you, Lord. We pray that we would, we would be people who would read the word and Lord, that we would be able to defend what we believe and have a defense for of our faith for those who ask. And Jesus, that as, as it says in the word, that we would study to show thyself approved, the workmen who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And God, all this, this study, it's no good, Lord, if, if it doesn't fill our hearts with love for the lost. If it doesn't fill our hearts with love for the people that are on the aisle next to us and across from us. Jesus, because the greatest commandment, even though you told us to study the word and to preach the gospel, the greatest commandment is still to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. And so God, help us to be a people of love, a people that are are of love and are true to your word. And the process of, of studying and knowing you, Jesus, and knowing your word is that we fall more in love with you. And we fall more in love with your word. And God, I pray that you would use us to be witnesses in our jobs, in our homes. And Lord, I do pray for anybody in here, God, who... Um, may have some some less straw and more bricks type of mentality going on at work or some struggles at work. And Lord, I pray, Father, that you would just speak to them and give them encouragement and hope. And Jesus, give them a nugget and, and just do some, some, give them some blessing, Lord, that, that helps them and keeps them going. And Lord, that you would use them where they are, Jesus. That there would be relief, Lord. And, and until there's, there's relief, Jesus, and until there's, there's that break, that God, you would give them strength and, and grace and mercy to to have a good attitude and to know that you are the Lord and that you're sovereign and you have a plan. And so God bless them. Bless them at home. Bless them at work. And God, fill them with your spirit. Meet the needs that they have. Lord, we pray for our um, fishing trip this, this Saturday. And Lord, I just thank you for the guys that are putting it on. And Lord, I pray, Father, for all those that are going to come and families that are going to be a part. That it just be a blessed day. You keep everybody safe as we travel, Lord. And God, that we would uh, just catch fish and, and have a good time, that the kids would have a good time, the adults would fellowship, and that, that you would bless our, our family time together this weekend, Lord. And God, we thank you. We praise you, Lord. We lift your name on high, God. And we just ask your blessing upon all those things. We pray for our rummage sale. And Lord, we ask your blessing upon the, the Knoxon family um, rummage sale at the Baptist church the same day. And uh, Lord, we, we pray for our, our potluck coming up at the end of this month. And uh, we pray for our ladies' study and men's study. And 
God, we pray for our children's ministry as we're just trying to recruit and make it better all the time. Lord, we ask, Father, that you would just bring the right people and the right heart. And, and Lord, help us to recognize and address issues and fix them. And Lord, that we can love the kids and teach them about Jesus. And that Lord, they can be excited to come and want to come. And Lord, that, that you would bless that. And, and Father, we just pray for, um, for, for your, your Holy Spirit to minister in our church and in our lives. And Lord, I thank you for our worship ministry and Lord, our worship family that we have. And Lord, for our, our sound people and ask your blessing upon them, Father. Lord, we just pray for the new ministries that need to start. And Lord, any other, any other area of the church that's fallen down or Lord, that just needs propped up or fixed up or, 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 or healed or touched, Jesus, that you would touch it. And ultimately, Lord, we know that happens as you touch each one of our lives, God, and catch us on fire for Jesus. And Jesus, we, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.